I'm Kate Daniels. We know our world is in a great deal of hurt. It didn't just happen. Thoughts and actions have led us down that path, and so we can make our way out of that dark place. And one man very committed to this is Omri Johnson, the CEO and founder of Inclusion Wins and the author of an important new book, Reconstructing Inclusion. Omri Johnson, good morning and welcome. I really appreciate your being available this morning to talk about your work with Inclusion Wins, a very important company, and then your new book really surrounding all of that work called Reconstructing Inclusion. You are just so passionate, obviously, about this work. Absolutely. Absolutely. I have a passion for humanity. I think the work that I do and my passion for people and, and for humanity as a whole, I'm pretty lucky in that regard. That just really grabs my heart. There's just this great need. The world, the planet is crying for this to have us engage. And I guess we need the leadership, the direction on how to engage to have this love for each other and acceptance and inclusion, which is, yes, this is your life's work, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. So I read from your website, which we'll give here in a, in a little bit as well, and this really intrigued me. It said he is an inclusion strategist, executive advisor, social capitalist, epidemiologist, and entrepreneur. His mission is to create thousands of organizations that thrive via inclusion behaviors, leadership, structures, and practices. So that just recaps what you were saying, that this is your passion for humanity, just says it very simply, what the paragraph that I just read. What really caught me, though, is that it mentions your being an epidemiologist. And so this is work that you've done as well. Absolutely. You know, probably a lot of people didn't even know what an epidemiologist was before the pandemic. So a lot of people probably thought it was a skin doctor. So there are some diseases of the skin that can become quite infectious and can spread to a lot of people quickly towards uh, creating some type of epidemic of some sort or an outbreak of some sort. But, um, you know, I think now everybody knows what an epidemiologist is. My work in public health really led me into the work that I do now in organizational life. So it was really, I got interested in it because I started with looking at health disparities in underserved communities and wondering, you know, there's some people that are doing quite well, and there's some people that are doing less well. What are the people that are doing well getting right, or what what do they have privilege towards? What What do they have available to them that those folks that aren't doing so well don't? Now, some of those answers are very evident, and some of them are hidden. And so I was interested in obviously understanding why we had the problem, but also really coming to an understanding of why are some people doing well and others aren't, and what can we do to to get the people that aren't doing well more of that which the ones that are thriving have. And that is then so obvious in terms of how in that one area of work it really does 
go across the whole spectrum of our life in everything that we do. And it's beautiful to see how you made that transference. And now it's become this global work for humanity. And you have this wonderful book for us, Reconstructing Inclusion, Making DEI Accessible, Actionable, and Sustainable important word there too. So you've taken this, uh, the, the work that you've done, and you've spent 20 years on this. Does that include your work in the medical field as well? Yeah, my career spans uh, 20 years, but I've been really focused in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space really early. I'd say the beginning of my career started there. I had a mentor. His name was Bill Jenkins, and, and Bill, I sometimes still get choked up. We lost him some years ago. But Bill was an epidemiologist, PhD trained. He went to my alma mater, Morehouse College. And Bill really has been, he's trained so many epidemiologists, particularly those from underrepresented groups, to look at where can we address social determinants of health And that's where I initially became interested in what we might call, you know, remotely DEI. And his compassion, his, he was a Quaker, really committed and rooted in humanist principles. And I followed him. I would follow him wherever he went. I didn't, I couldn't stand him when I was younger, when I first met him, because he challenged everything that I thought I knew. But after that, I started to work. So my public health career and my work specifically with organizations and in organizational life have really kind of blended together. So that 20 years is inclusive of my 20 plus years now is inclusive of my public health work uh, training, even into college and, and through today. And that's beautiful to know, you know, that the early part of your venturing on this path and now to really have this deep desire to share it with all of us because we need it. Whether we really are conscious of that fact, we need this philosophy, not just as a philosophy, but a way of living and being so that we have this within our becomes part of our DNA, I guess, that we want to be inclusive, right? Absolutely. I I mean, I think, I think all of us want to be included. And if you really comes down to it, and you really understand it, because we're so interdependent as, as humans, and particularly in organizations, you can't have you know, functionally, um, inclusion of some, but not inclusion of all. So obviously that happens, but it doesn't mean that an organization is inclusive until everybody understands that there might be some situations where exclusion occurs, but part of our role, all of our role, not just those who are responsible or have diversity, equity, and inclusion in their title, everybody is responsible for making corrections as quickly as they can identify where some type of exclusion on for any reason is concerned. So this is always a we thing. I was joking some, I, I like hip hop. And so there, you probably, if you know who Snoop Dogg is, he had nothing but a G thing. I said, it's nothing but a we thing. <laughs> <laughs> so we, um, this is a we thing. And, and in organizational life, if we don't make it a we thing, we're really not going to manifest it in the way that I believe organizations uh, can. Yes. 
and it feels so simple, and yet, and people may say, you know, more I'm thinking kind of at the leadership level that this is what they want, and yet it doesn't really come out uh, to be the way it is in that organization. Do you feel, though, that the individuals, the employees within an organization can then really make a difference? Can they, you know, at the grassroots follow this, the reconstructing inclusion? Can we do that to make it happen? I think on an individual basis, some of the things that we can do every day to create the space for one another is absolutely in the uh, choice of every single individual. Now, I think sometimes we talk about the notion of privilege in the diversity, equity, and inclusion work. And the reality is that a lot of us have some semblance of privilege. The, The question is, how are we using what we understand about our privilege to be helpful in whatever way we can be helpful. So obviously there's some times where you have less power and at times that's because of either your status or your your level or hierarchy in an organization. Sometimes it does relate to your identity because the organization has some inherent biases. At the same time, even with that, we have something that we can do to be of service to another. And in organizations, that might be sharing a bit of information with somebody that you just don't know if they got it, which will help them do their job or thrive more effectively or or helping somebody learn a skill that will help them thrive. So all of us have the potential to contribute to someone's thriving. It doesn't mean we can change the whole system instantaneously by ourselves as individuals, but Act by act, we can all make contributions to help uh, what I call the so-called other thrive, because, again, it's a we thing. And so when we talk about others, we're talking about our colleagues and, and we are we are dependent and interdependent with them, dependent on and interdependent with them. Yeah. And your work, though, is at the level of working with the organization, with the leadership within organizations to embrace this and, and make it become part of like this living organism within their organization? Absolutely. I'm looking at systems change, but I also know that the lived or embodied experiences of individuals are part of that system changing. So while you're, you're engaged with some of the most senior leadership, it can't be just on that level of leadership or management in an organization. It, it really still relates to everyone, and you have to put these things into place in a way that people are responsible for a variety of systems. So while you might not be in senior leadership, you might be responsible for a really key project in your organization. And you can, uh, I'll use an example. I I had one uh, group of people come to me, and they were responsible for uh, preclinical safety in their organization. And Sometimes the the drug discovery teams of this pharmaceutical company treated them like they were service providers. They were almost like they were externals. And they were frustrated by this. They didn't feel like they were able to make their best contribution to the scientific questions and to these projects and to the research that was ongoing. And they had, you know, just wells of knowledge that that they could contribute to every project. 
So we went back and we said, hey, look, what's getting in the way of this? And they said, well, they don't see us as part of the team. And so why don't they see us as part of the team? Well, we always bring bad news when we have a safety issue and we have to uh, cancel the project or we have to go back and do more research. And I said, okay, well, they want that because that's safety for the patients and that's important, but maybe they want it in a more dynamic way. They don't want you to just come in, drop in, say that there's a problem and then have to go back and do uh, more experimentation. What about the ongoing dialogue? And they said, we don't get that because we just come in for a small amount of time. And I said, okay, well, let's reconsider how the project works and how, the, how your influence can play a, better, a bigger role. And so they went and they did what I call contracting. I did a two-hour education session with them around contracting. They had contracting conversations. They said, this is what we can bring to the table. Here's what we need from you to do it. The team leaders were like, wow, that's amazing. That's exactly what we want. As a result, those preclinical safety folks were a part of every meeting. They were a part of the meetings after the meeting. They were a part of pre-meetings. They were being called kind of ad hoc to ask questions about safety and some of their experiences with drug discovery. The result was everybody could thrive, the project can thrive, and in this case, the possibility of getting a medicine to a patient quicker went up because the delays in the projects could begin to go down more and more over time because that relationship was stronger and the preclinical safety team um, had greater levels of inclusion. So this isn't like something that is just, you know, I go to the senior level leadership. It's about everybody finding ways that they can do this that create the conditions for each other uh, to thrive and make their best contributions to the organizational purpose. And it seems there's need then, at least in some, if not maybe most cases, to have a third party like yourself with this awareness to come in and show how the teams can work together because otherwise they didn't seem to be conscious of it or they don't seem to know that. Is that right? Sometimes. You know, um, honestly, Kate, I'm very, uh, I guess I can say blessed to be able to do what I do to make these contributions to teams, organizations, and, and institutions. And my goal is not for it always to be about a diversity consultant to come in. Of course, I want to continue to work. I want to be able to develop my business. But I also want to create the capabilities internally for people to recognize when dynamics of exclusion or, or dynamics of missed opportunity to create the conditions for people to thrive are being missed. And so that you can be able to put up the mirror to yourself. I start and I come into organizations to put up a mirror for them to hold and put up to one another. I'm every day looking at my own mirror to make sure that I keep my integrity when I do so. And then the hope is they're putting up the mirror to one another because they really want to get this right. They really want people to feel like they belong. They really want people to know that they're respected and valued for their unique contributions to the organization. So if that mirror holding, that truth telling with each other, is up. And we can be honest with ourselves about our role. And sometimes we're going to make a mistake when we put the mirror up to, to point somebody out rather than first put it on ourselves. So we're putting the mirrors up to everyone, including ourselves. And to do so is a set of capabilities that don't necessarily require an external consultant incessantly. So if I can do it for a brief time and they can do it uh, in a sustainable way, um, that's aligned with their organizational purpose. That's my uh, biggest joy. 
and certainly in the example you shared, that they got it and it continued going forward and they embraced Mm it. And maybe they share it then with other organizations or not. I'm just trying to conceive how can we make this a way of really the way that we are, not to put you out of work, but to, you, but really, <laughs> <laughs> but maybe you'd welcome that, like, oh, if there's no need for me, we've, we've arrived there. You know, I have something else I need to be doing. Oh, with it, right? I, I, you know, I think there's this, there's been this belief that diversity, equity, and inclusion work is like a social work model. We're trying to eradicate a problem, so we ne- we're never there. But we, when we build what are called inclusion systems, what we're trying to do is all, there's going to be new situations and new problems that organizations need to adapt to all the time. That never stops. So how many of us would have believed that we were going to have a, a global pandemic three mm. years ago? It wouldn't have crossed our minds at all. It wouldn't have, it wouldn't have been a, a, a thought, except for some of the epidemiologists I know. But generally, these problems are always coming up. We're always experiencing new challenges. So when you build a system of inclusion, when you, when you kind of hardwire inclusion into all your organizational systems, that's when it becomes what, I, what you would say is a sustainable thing where it becomes somewhat, for lack of a better word, and also referring to the pandemic viral, <laughs> where it, the organization knows that inclusion is central to every organizational system from the strategy through all the practices that you do in teams, through how you reward and, and, and recognize people, and then, of course, to how you uh, bring people into the organization, develop them, and grow their capacity for contribution. So the answer for me is create inclusion systems, design inclusion systems, and develop those systems incessantly so you can constantly get better at what it means to be an inclusive organization, what it means to create the conditions for people to thrive, what it means for people to feel like they belong and can make their best contributions, um, and ultimately for the organization to create more value than just for itself, to create value for the communities in which they do work, where their people live, and where some of their customers are. So that's what we're really uh, trying to make a reality, is creating these systems of inclusion uh, where everyone can thrive and create and contribute their best to the organization, elevating the organization uh, to the extraordinary. And I guess that, you know, I had spoken with someone earlier about how we are, that we are doing well, but we could be weller. It's like increasing the level of... Exactly. Right? Yeah. <laughs> that kind of idea. So I think this is a good point to in time to mention the website where there is a wealth of information, and, and your website is www.inclusionwins.com, inclusionwins.com, one word. So that captures the essence of it. And there we can find more information about this really important book, which I think, again, can be used so well in terms of a map or guideposts, reconstructing inclusion, making DEI accessible, actionable, and sustainable. And each of those words are, are so critical, being actionable and being accessible and being sustainable, because they do need to all be present to make this really thrive, to make us thrive. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And just, just so people know that the title really is about, accessibility is about the DEIs for everyone. Everyone's a part of this. I, I've been trying to 
make sure I repeat that over and over again. All of us are inside of uh, being of accessibility to DEI. All of us have to be in action. That means we have to unambiguously prioritize diversity, equity, and inclusion to make it real and to make it stick, just like you prioritize anything else in your organization. And then lastly, it has to be sustainable, and that means it needs to be aligned with purpose. And so if you can make it accessible, actionable, and sustainable, the possibilities of purpose alignment constantly being in action in an unambiguous way and that everybody's doing that uh, really go up. And that's what inclusion system design and development are all about. And so this, with based on your deep passion for humanity, I just I, I love that phrasing. It has you through all the words, you know, running throughout all the content so that we could take this and work with us within our own uh, small or larger communities at work or whatever organization, nonprofits we might be involved in. Absolutely. I say people pick it up, read it, share their thoughts with me. Don't hesitate to reach out to me on LinkedIn or through our website, I am very, very big on creating community. And so I'm not one of those folks that's going to be hard to reach in a way I'm busy. But if somebody wants to reach out to me, I always respond and I'm always in for criticism, for praise and for challenge. And so I want folks to read the book so we can have robust conversations. I haven't figured this out. And if somebody tells you that they have, be very, 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 very careful about listening to them too much. It's all of us need to figure this out. And it's a, it's a process. It's, a, it's an ongoing, incessant one. And, and it's one that I'm welcoming everyone to, to engage with me on if they're so inclined. So that comes back to your favorite song, and it morphed a little. It's a we thing. Absolutely. It's a wee thing. And that's from everybody that is in my neighborhood and in my town that I live here. I live in here in Basel, Switzerland, all the way back to my hometown in Topeka, Kansas. So that it's a wee thing around the world. In my, my friends from Taiwan, it's everybody that uh, is a wee and all the people in between north, south, east, and west. So we all have to do this. And in organizational life, it it definitely has to be about every single uh, contributor to the organization, whether they're entry level or most senior. And so, Omri, as you mentioned, uh, you know, these global locations, you work, obviously, I think, as we said at the outset, you work globally. And that's been your experience with the people that you meet we're all really within us wanting, reaching out for wanting the same thing, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah. one thing I can say, you know, I was here in, in Basel when George Floyd was murdered, Kate, and that shocked everyone. We were in the middle of a global pandemic. There were things emerging on our understanding of the data where people that were most vulnerable were most impacted by COVID. And then we saw a murder of a human on television on our small devices and large devices. And it put, took us all into our common humanity. And it, we were able to hold on to that for a moment in time. But in a way, we, it slipped a little bit where we started moving it towards us and them. And again, going back to a we thing, when we were feeling that energy of humanity pulsing through us, some of us were feeling some rage around it. Some of us were sad and some of us were shocked. 
all of us were tapping into our humanity. And, and that's what we have to really harness. And I think that's our opportunity is that we don't have to go to polar dynamics. We can come to something that's central, something that we all can understand that is at the heart of who we are and utilize that to overcome some of those tensions that come from our differences. And, and I think if we, if we practice that, it actually creates a, you know, a space where everyone uh, feels like they can have their voice and they know that their voice can be listened to and that they're willing to be influenced by one another. Then we can make progress. And particularly in organizations, this is becoming more and more uh, necessary just because there's so much coming at companies that if they don't get this right, it's going to create challenges, oftentimes those that they can't see simply because their relationships are compromised and not in alignment with the common humanity of, of their people. So offering or making available these times to be able to speak and to listen, have both of those things going yeah. on, everyone having that opportunity is is part of the solution to getting to this place of inclusion. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you've, you've been in situations, I think we all have, where we just didn't feel like somebody was listening to us. Mm -hmm. And either we do one thing, we kind of raise our voice and say, wait a minute, listen to me, or we retreat. Most people retreat in organizations because it's not always safe in terms of your livelihood to actually speak up. If we create those conditions where when people feel like something is being missed that they can contribute, if the organization creates that capacity to listen, and, and, and as I said, one of the ways I define inclusion is a willingness to be influenced by the so-called other, that we're willing to be influenced by each other despite uh, our differences. And sometimes, you know, historically that this person might be so junior that maybe I shouldn't listen to them. It shouldn't matter where a good idea comes from in an organization. Everybody should be listened to. And if somebody is feeling a certain way, they should be listened to. And if somebody has an idea, doesn't matter if you agree with it or not, they should be listened to. Because the likelihood that you figured it all out wherever you sit in the organization is low. And the more input you get, the more uh, experiences that come to the table, the better you'll be able to solve problems and, and maybe even tap into something that you weren't able to tap into without such a uh, such inputs. Oh, this is so vitally, critically important to each of our lives and and for our collective future. And it's in a way it it is simple if we're willing to open ourselves up and do the work. Uh, it's not going to be easy, and I think that's it. We need to accept that it, it's going to be some hard work, but we, what are our options if we don't commit ourselves to that? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> our options are, you know, there is no uh, – one thing I say in the book is there's no go-it-alone strategy. Mm. Um, we either win together or we uh, lose together when you think about it in the framing of humanity. And so humanity will go up or humanity will go down, and it won't be where that somebody that has more um, privilege or more resources goes up when humanity goes down. Humanity goes down, we all go down. Yes. And so I think if we, if we frame 
what we're trying to do in organizations like that, we, we move away from this thinking that some are going to win and some are going to lose zero-sum game. Mm-hmm. Again, it's a we thing. And if we anchor on that, we move away, whether we agree with some of the common beliefs about DEI, the notion of, of inclusion and people making their best contribution and thriving, again, is universal. You don't have to really believe or understand the terminology or the rhetoric that comes from folks that are very passionate about this. You don't have to even you know, subscribe to it, but you do have to subscribe to the humanity of your people. And if nothing else gets folks involved in diversity, equity, and inclusion, that should be an anchor, should be a pull towards us doing things that are going to create the right conditions for everybody, um, all the stakeholders that, that you touch in your organization internally and externally to thrive. That's a pull that I think everybody can get uh, get behind. Oh, yes, absolutely. And I would even suggest if you don't think so, see if you can prove Omri wrong. Read the book. Embrace that. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. So the book is readily available, Reconstructing Inclusion, and the website, once again, Omri, is? Inclusionwins.com. See, it says it all, Inclusion Wins. Yes. Well, it's been such an honor and a privilege to speak with you. I'm so, so grateful for the work that you're doing, and it's for all of us. It's it's a we thing, as you say. It's for us that you're doing it. So thank you so greatly for your passion. Thank you, Kay. Thanks, Sunday Morning Magazine listeners, and make it a great rest of your day. <laughs>